You are listening to the voice of Ahlus Sunnah wal Jama'at. Yeah, it's Yom Al-Khamis, Thursday, the fifth day of the week. Uh, Alhamdulillah, uh, the uh, sun is down. Inshallah, you've got your Makhrib Salah behind you. You've read your Surah Al-Mulk, Surah Al-Sajda, Alif Lamin Sajda. Yeah, don't forget, uh, you, read, uh, you read these two Surahs and they will protect you in the Kabar. In fact, uh, Surah Al-Sajda, Surah Sajda will request Allah Ta'ala to remove it from the book if He will not forgive you on the day of Qiyamah. Oh, what a better what a better friend you could not ask for. SubhanAllah, uh, this is Welcome to Business Matters with me, your host, Alameen Templeton. Remember the number here in the studio is 010-001-004. That's 010-001-004. We can call or you can WhatsApp us messages on 084-786-3132. Well, it's been a little bit of a quiet uh, kind of day, a quietish kind of day on uh, the JSE today. Uh, but we still got a lot of interesting things coming up in our show. And uh, don't forget that here on Marcus Sahaba, a lot of very interesting programming coming up after the show too. We've got Dr. Yusuf Wahid on Medical File from 8 to 9, and followed at 9 by uh, after the Azan, a repeat of Q&A with Mufti AK. So, well, a lot of good things coming up on uh, Marcus Sahaba, Al-Usana wal Jamaa. The gold, yes, is trading at $290.69 a fine ounce, just like sort of $2 away from where it was yesterday. Um, we've got uh, the JC All Share is up 1.57 today. Boy, that's amazing. What a, just a brief little opinion from Moody's can do. Uh, the market is very quiet today. I think everyone's just basically guzzling down, uh, digesting all of the good news and uh, the fill-up that, uh, that opinion has given the markets. As I said yesterday, you know, it would have been nice if they had made, made it a proper full-on assessment. It would, would have given us an even bigger boost, I think. Uh, but, well, that wasn't the way that Moody's does things um, a bit of a strange thing, isn't it? You know, the whole country's waiting, 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 and then suddenly it's not happening. Um, yeah. Uh, they're going to be bringing out another uh, assessment sometime after May. Not exactly sure when. Normally it would be around about October, November they would be giving their assessment. But now that they've skipped this one, uh, they've got one due after May. And... Uh, Apparently, they want a bit more time to consider the effects of the May election. Uh, no one knows. Uh, will the ANC get back in again? Will it stay in power? Is it going to be replaced by somebody else? And if so, who? And if they are are replaced, what will be the reaction? Uh, you know, I, I kind of like think of... Uh, you, you You have a look at the kind of like the two-party systems... Uh, that are holding sway across most uh, most uh, of the of the mature democracies in the world, the stagnating economies, the cam- the economies that are going to war because they've run out of growth and they're getting into very big trouble because they're about to be leapfrogged by a whole lot of uh, former colonies and countries that they've been abusing for decades, and in many cases centuries. Uh, if you have a look at those uh, economies, uh, you see they've got this kind of like a two-party system thing, which is, uh, you know, when the one party comes in, there's not much difference than when the other party was in. Like, you know, you, you get the Democrats in America, they come into power, they go and they bomb the Muslims. You get the Republicans, they come into power, they go and they bomb the Muslims. Um, but the Democrats do it with a smile, whereas uh, the Republicans do it with a snarl. I don't know if that really means anything. Um, you know, when the, when the conservatives in, in Britain go and bomb the Muslims, uh, uh, then uh, you get the Labour Party that comes and bomb the Muslims. In fact, the, the Labour Party seemed to have done a worse job in bombing the Muslims than the Conservative Party did. Well, you know, um, Libya, Iraq, 
and, and, I, and I kind of wonder, you know, is, uh, is, is this whole Brexit imbroglio that's been going on in England nothing more than a major distraction for the entire system? They should be asking themselves, why do we continue going and killing people for no reason? You know, no weapons of mass destruction. We're just going to have a peaceful little no-fly zone over Libya. Next thing we know, we're bombing and shooting and machine gunning people to death. Oh, well, um, you know, that, that seems... Uh, I once uh, was sitting in a restaurant with some friends and we were discussing uh, the state of society and I said, you know what, I reckon uh, on the Day of Judgment when, uh, when all of the world's people are gathered on a big plain for, for judgment, there's going to be like a little cliff overlooking the whole thing and all of the world's big dictators are going to be standing there because, you know, they're going to be getting a very special judgment. That's uh, the lowest part of hell is for the dictators, the the hypocrites and the shaitan, of course, yeah. So, yeah, all of the hypocrites will be standing there and, uh, you know, they'll all be discussing about how they, how they uh, oppress their people, how they, like, held onto power, how they seize power. And, you know, Julius Caesar will be there and say, well, my cohorts and my legions, you know, we formed these, these uh, special military tactics that we had. And the Greeks will be going on saying, yeah, but we had the phalanx. And uh, the Romans will be saying, yeah, but we had the tortoise and we had the, we had the, um, you know, all very different kinds of things. And some guys will say, but we had the pylon, we had the, we had the lance. And other guys will be saying, yo, we had the rock. You know, right at the very beginning, they go, I had rock. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we go through them, there'll be Napoleon with all of his tactics. There'll be Hitler with his, uh, his Blitzkrieg tactics. There'll be, um, there'll be Donald Trump with his war. And then right at the very end of the whole thing, there'll be this old man with this wispy little beard with this stripy, starry hat on his head. And it'll be Uncle Sam. And they'll say to him, how did you do it, Sam? How did you do it? And he'll just hold out an emaciated, skinny little hand with dirty fingernails and be holding a hamburger. And they'll say, I did it with convenience. I found that you didn't have to... Uh, do evil things to people. If you gave them convenience, they'd do it to themselves. They would throw their parents out of the house. Uh, they would send off their children uh, into the wide world without any support as soon as they had finished school. They would educate their kids just so that they didn't have to have anything to do with them uh, once they were grown up. Uh, they would do all kinds of things to themselves for convenience. Give people uh, running hot water, and it's amazing what they will do. And in essence, that's that's basically uh, the the voting populations of the stagnating economies, as their governments, without any uh, uh, permission from their people, go and wage wars and kill millions of people, millions of people. Yeah, yeah. You know, you get uh, you still get. Uh, I mean, uh, Lancet. It was still during uh, the Iraq War. Uh, Lancet is the foremost uh, medical journal in the world. Uh, doctors and professors and academicians all over the world, they love, they dream of being published in Lancet. Lancet, during the Iraq War, came out and said that more than one and a half million people had been killed according to epidemiological studies, uh, taking the known amount of people who had been killed and estimating how many unknown cases are there and then extrapolating that further to a final uh, complete figure. Now, um, for purposes of accuracy, these are the methods that are used in the stagnating economies uh, to, you know, uh, drive social welfare, uh, all kinds of um, interventions by government are dependent on knowing, having an accurate idea of like how much money we need, how many cases are there, how much money, how, much, how many people, how much staff do we have to commit to this problem. They need those epidemiological studies in order to have a clear idea. And that's what they use in their own countries. But when it came to the Iraq war, no way. It's, no, it's one and a half million people. No, 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 no. And I'm sure even more have died as a result of that. If you look at cities like Fallujah, where the Americans were using depleted uranium in their artillery shells to shoot into civilian areas. Now, you know that when an artillery shell explodes, all tiny little shards of metal go all over the place. Some of them microscopic. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's impossible to collect all of that. And now that is embedded in walls. It's embedded in the ground. It's in the water supply. It's everywhere. You know, maldeformed babies uh, being born. 
you would think that this would uh, the, 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 this would uh, upset people, you know, who are accustomed to thinking of themselves as good because they feel a, a feeling of love in their hearts when they look at a picture of a kitten. Say, oh, I feel love in my heart. I'm a loving person. I must be a good person. Whereas in actual fact, did you know that the essence of goodness is not love, it's compassion. Think about that. It's not love. It's compassion is the essence of goodness. Love is not enough to determine goodness. You see, you can love your mistress and leave your wife. You can abandon your children for love of your mistress. You can love your car so much that you race all over the highways and you, you create accidents and you injure people, kill people, including yourself. These things can happen. You love racing fast. You love the feeling of the wind in your hair. You love the look on the face of the guys when you go past them and they've got to like get out of your way. You love that. You really love it. You live for it. Ah, oh, you love it. Is that good? No. Compassion is the essence of goodness. Compassion. After Allah, it's the second name of Allah that Nabi Karim وسلم, instructed us to learn. The compassionate. Straight after Allah, the first name, the compassionate. I don't think that's coincidence. Where is the compassion in these countries? Where is their dedication to democracy and all of these things that they claim they espouse when they denigrate the Muslim countries and they say, yeah, I know we are like living in the Stone Age and so on. Mm? All of these uh, peaceful rationalists. It's amazing how these peaceful rationalists will do nothing when, uh, when the, 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 the world's true holocaust is underway. Yeah, the true holocaust. The other holocaust would just practice holocaust. This, this one is the ultimate holocaust that is going on now because I can't see it ending. Uh, America's generals and America's politicians, America's economists are still speaking about unending war. Hmm? What happened to the war to end all wars? This is now the war to, co to continue until the day of Kiyama. Well, it may be. Who knows? Allah Ta'ala knows, I tell you that much. Well, anyway, okay, right, okay. So suddenly I had a, that was very unplanned. I didn't actually really mean to talk, talk about that stuff uh, when I started my show. Um, coming up in the show, we've got markets betting in the South African Reserve Bank will lower interest rates later this year. Telcom doesn't own the cable routes in private estates. How about that? That's a very interesting little thing. Uh, basically, property law coming uh, in there. Uh, who is Ricardo Hausman, dubbed the economist from hell? And why is he whispering in Titumba in his ear? Gordon says ESCOM must bring tariffs back to a level that is affordable. Oh, affordable. What is an affordable ESCOM tariff? Rest of Africa is accelerating away from Mzansi. The, the Africa's three biggest economies, Europe, I mean, Europe. Uh, yeah, well, in actual, we are the economy of Europe rather than the other way around. Uh, Egypt, uh, uh, Nigeria, and South Africa, we're struggling to put on, well, in actual, Egypt's not doing too badly. They put on 5.5% growth this year. But Nigeria and South Africa, Nigeria's only seen putting on 2.7% growth this year. South Africa official rate is 1.7. Other people are saying it might be around about 0.2. Once you've taken the effects of uh, increasing ESCOM tariffs and increasing petrol into account, plus um, regular uh, downtimes uh, from our national power utility. Uh, so, yeah, we're we, we, we sitting around, otherwise, somewhere between 0.2 and 1.7% growth this year. Why is that happening? Uh, half of the 91 branches, standard blank, standard bank is planning to close well soon it will be standard blank you'll go along to your branch and there'll be nothing there standard blank is closing or in Gauteng EOH promises a report on bribes soon but uh, you know after this stage is anyone really listening okay all of these coming up into the show a lot to get through despite a quiet day on the JSC let's go and have a look at ShareNet and see uh, what the, the tail of the tape has to say the all share index closed 1.57% up today on 58.056.55 uh, the top 40 1.63% up on 51,782.23 uh, Rand is uh, stronger against the, the dollar 
It's stronger against the pound and it's stronger against the euro. And it's really nice to see that. It's not often that we have to say these things. But then the currency traders are probably just uh, engaging in their usual pump and dump um, uh, tactics, which is, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's easy to drive down a, a currency once it is, as it has raised to a certain level. Whereas, you know, when you're pushing it down all the time, that, uh, that you know, the, uh, the pushback from the currency starts happening. So every now and then, you know, a big event comes along and it prevents you from, uh, from an actual being able to push it down. This is the way I see things. This is the way I see things. Uh, yeah, well... You can, uh, I can hear a lot of uh, former colleagues of mine from the business fraternity saying, oh, listen to him, he's a, he's a, he's a what, or what they call it, um, conspiracy theorist. But then ask yourself, which of these financial journalists has in actual fact investigated the, the competition commission's uh, complaints sent through to the competition tribunal that banks are manipulating RAND value? How many stories of that have you seen in business day? How many stories of that have you seen on MoneyWeb? How many stories have you seen in Saka Built or Business Report? These kind of things should be on the front page. I know, just talking to normal South Africans, this kind of thing is foremost in the mind of most South Africans, 90% of South Africans, the rand, the rand, the rand. Ah, you know, it hurts us. But how many of your business publications will go and investigate these things? They won't go and investigate these things, on the one hand, because they depend on advertising from the very guys who are doing the manipulation. And two, their very function is to be part of the whole thing. Oh, well, uh, that's the way I see things. And I say things uh, the way I see them on the show. And, uh, you know, uh, that's the way things are on Business Matters. You won't get it on any other business show in South Africa. Uh, they will all tell you about all things about dating and dating and uh, the the bond interest rate curve is uh, starting to intersect and we like reckon there's going to be a bit of pullback after some emerging market contagion starts taking off. And <laughs> what other nonsense? I'll tell you what. The biggest thing that moves markets, that moves currencies any time on a daily basis is the journalists that are covering the markets. Who've got their little mouths, who've got their ears very close to the currency trader's mouth. Very, very close in the case of uh, Bloomberg and Reuters, uh, who uh, have actual trading platforms. These are the main trading platforms that the currency traders use. So it's a very nice little community. You see, the currency traders have to have a reason in order to make the currencies go up. So today the currencies are going up in Europe and America and Asia because the Financial Times brought out a report that said that um, while they see there's going to be a breakthrough in trade talks between America and China at some time at some undisclosed future date. Now, despite the fact that that uh, article has got nothing to do with how currency traders uh, feel about anything, the currency traders, it's the only reference point that the currency traders have latched onto today. One article in the Financial Times. Now, um, having known many financial journalists on a very intimate basis, I would just like to advise the currency dealers that this is a very inexact science that you guys are falling back on. Uh, the uh, rumors that journalists have heard in a bar or in a pub or in a, in a dinner with some equally ignorant journalists. I. The financial, uh, no, no, the scientific formula for journalism, by the way, is J equals 3D cubed. Did you know that? You know, it's like um, speed of light is E equals MC squared. Well, journalism operates according to the scientific formula of J equals 3D cubed, where J is the reality or J is the journalism. And the 3D is uh, the three dimensions. Hmm? And uh, it's cubed, it's put in a little box. We take our reality, the three dimensions, we put it in a little box, we cube it. We make it easily digestible, easily understood and easily forgotten. 
so as a result, people are never ever sustained by the news that they read, and they're always hungry for more because they never actually get any satisfaction in it. That's one level of understanding J equals 3D cubed. There's another level of J equals 3D cubed, and that is D in actual fact stands for dinner, you see. Uh, journalists uh, being so myopically uh, cut off from the rest of society because they're dependent on gossip in order to stay alive. Uh, therefore, stop really kind of like circulating in normal human being circles and, uh, you know, seen as zombies only existing Hollywood. They're forced then to live together, you see. Uh, they go and they have dinners together. They go out and they get drunk together. They they cheat together. They lie together. They get married together. These kinds of things. It's very um, incestuous kind of uh, uh, society. And, uh, and so for a journalist to have any kind of like sort of um, confidence in his journalism or her journalism, they dependent on being invited to dinners, you see. Uh, and journalists love going to dinners because then they're surrounded by all the same people who say all the same kind of things, you see. There's nothing like a bunch of thieves and liars getting together at a dinner table. I mean, they love each other to death until they leave, of course. Uh, so, so journalists are then dependent on remaining, uh, you know, cutting edge by being invited to dinners uh, so that they can uh, kind of uh, reinforce uh, the, uh, the, the lies that they're continually having to reinforce on, on a daily basis. And uh, if they go to three dinners where a particular issue is seen as going in one direction, then they can say that objectively speaking, here is an issue in society that they can write about with confidence because they've been to three journalist dinners and this issue was raised at all three dinners. So therefore, uh, that is the 3D cubed, you see. They've been to three dinners. Uh, and they've met three journalists at those dinners, you see. There's a 3D cubed. So uh, that is how journalists uh, create journalism, is by going to dinner with other journalists. Makes sense. It's, a, it's objective, you see. That's the only way that journalists can be objective. Uh, this is the only objective standard for journalism. I, I invented it myself. Um, I think I'm taking out a patent on it, and I'm going to roll it out to the Donald Trump, Fox, and CNN newsrooms, and it's going to take the world by storm, I'm quite certain. Oh, uh, well, now, now you see, now I'm, now I'm being uh, sidetracked again. Okay, so, uh, yeah, the, uh, the rand uh, today is, uh, let, let, let's go through it slowly because, uh, you know, it's not often we can do this thing. Yesterday, the rand was at 14.25. Today, it's on 14.16. Yesterday, the rand to the pound was 18.58. And uh, today, it's 18.62. So, it's gone four cents weaker there. And it's uh, yesterday, it was 15.92 to the euro. And today it's 15.91, so we've gained three cents. Well, look, you know, a gain is a gain. We're going to lock it in, okay? Uh, and today the South African rand is still at 13 cents to the Japanese yen. Turkish lira will still buy you two rand 52. And the Australian, uh, the Australian dollar is trading against the South African rand today. Um, I it precisely, uh, you know, it takes a while for sometimes for these uh, new sites to click in. Okay, so we so I won't worry about the Aussie dollar today, uh, seeing as Fin Twenty Four has been so slow. Thanks, guys. No, too late. We've uh, we've left you now. Right. Okay. So anyway, mm, I always like to po po point that out in the show that uh, you know the rand is weakening. Uh, apparently against the dollar and the pound but nevertheless you know, there's the other basket of goods that's all the same so that means that currency traders in those countries are also uh, doing the dirty on our basket partners yeah you know like the japanese yen the australian dollar and so although the japanese yen is on the other side of the carry trade they come to us and they prey on us um mm, yeah okay look we're gonna have to go for a quick commercial break uh, we go, we're going to get through this. Uh, we, we, we're going to get through the show a little at a little bit of a faster pace when we come back. I promise. Please don't go away. You are listening to the voice of Ahlus Sunnah Wal Assalamu alaikum and welcome back. Well, markets are betting against the South African Reserve Bank's forecast earlier this year when it comes to the benchmark interest rate, our repo rate. 
Uh, forward rate agreements, they are used to speculate on interest rates, and they predict a 68% chance of a 25 basis point decrease in borrowing costs by the end of the year. That's despite the central bank's quarterly projection model implying an increase of the same magnitude to 7% in 2019. Uh, so basically what they're saying is the repo rate is on 6.75 has going to go down to 6.50 rather than going up to 7%. So that'll be a half percent interest rate difference. If you've got a big mortgage, that really does count something. Uh, in a judgment that has significant consequences for the telecommunications industry and homeowners, the Supreme Court of Appeal has overturned a lower court's judgment in favor of Telcom, ruling that Vodacom is entitled to access its rivals, is ruling that Vodacom is entitled to access its rivals' ducts. See, Telcom uh, has got these uh, has got these pipes with its cables going into gated estates and all of these different places where the Lanis live. I know, and some of you are there, and. Uh, and, uh, well, it's, uh, Vodacom came along and said, oh, you've got all these ducks going through the state. That's very nice. We don't have to build them ourselves. We've just, you know, we just pull our wire all the way through. Yeah, any electrician knows uh, that it can be a very tiresome job, but it's better than actually laying a whole lot of new pipeways and everything. And they were Telcom got to hear about this and said, we put them in on our cost and everything uh, with permission and da, 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 da. And, uh, no, Vodacom can't use him. Well, it's been taken to court, and uh, the Supreme Court of Appeal has ruled. Well, in actual fact, you know, uh, if you plant a tree on another man's property, uh, even if you water the tree and you prune the tree and you grow the tree, the tree belongs to the man because it's a lesser part of uh, the property on the property, and so it's, the ownership goes to the owner of the property. The uh, same thing is, uh, like, say, you come in and you build on another man's land accidentally. Like, say, uh, you, 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 your quantities of air came along and got the map all upside down. And, uh, yeah, you go and build a lovely building, and it turns out you built on another guy's property. Yeah, that building belongs to him. And so that's, a, that's basically a, a basic tenet of ancient Roman law, going all the way back to ancient Roman times. And uh, so... Uh, the, the case was taken up to the appeal court, and the appeal court now ruled in Vodacom's favor that it is, in actual fact, entitled to access its rival's duct. Uh, the High Court ruled in 2017 in favor of Telcom, stopping Vodacom from using its copper ducts at the Denegheer estate in Bizueni Avenue in Denegheer near Cape Town. Uh, Telcom described the judgment as a landmark ruling at the time. Uh, but, uh, well, today, yesterday, the Supreme Court of Appeal said, no, I'm sorry, but that is incorrect law, and now they now have overturned it. Who is Ricardo Hausman, who has been dubbed by Nicolas Maduro as the economist from hell? Um, I'll tell you who Ricardo Hausman is. He is one of two Harvard University economists, uh, along with Robert Lawrence, who were invited by Tito Mbaweni uh, just last month uh, to meet him and other government officials in Pretoria to stress test proposals for South Africa's economic growth. Isn't that nice? Huh? Harvard sends like top professors across to South Africa to help us with our economic problems. Between 2006 and 2008, Hausman led a panel of international economists. He led this panel of international economists, which included Lawrence, to advise National Treasury on measures to accelerate South Africa's growth. And how well did that go? Huh? This is the guy who was whispering in Mbaweni's ear in 2006 when he was governor of the Reserve Bank and Tito Mbaweni increased interest rates and uh, cut the legs out from the 5.5% economic growth we had been enjoying up until that time. T. Timberweni single-handedly uh, sabotaged the South African economy with his interest rates while governor of the Reserve Bank in, 27 and, in 2007 and 2008. T. Timberweni, while this guy, Ricardo Hausmann, was whispering in his ear. Uh, and he whispered in his ear all the way up to 2008 until the credit crunch happened, and uh, then he had to, I suppose, presumably go back to America and try to fix things there. Well, no, in actual fact, he hasn't just been busy in America. Or a little bit later, or that coming up. The event organized in Bawani will be attended, was attended by Minister of Economic Development, Ibrahim Patel. Ibrahim, remember, remember, Nabi Karim Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, it is your environment that will affect you. 
Yeah, be careful. Trader Minister Rob Davies is a very nice guy. Uh, National Treasury Director General Dondo Mogajani, among others. Treasury said in a statement later that the professors, together with other economists, would be asked to give their thoughts on government proposals to boost growth. Discussions at the colloquium will place particular emphasis on interventions that encourage new models and paradigm shifts in support of fast economic growth. The outcome of the colloquium colloquium will form the basis of economic policy proposals to be submitted to cabinet for its consideration in the new year. Ya Allah have mercy on this country. Uh, so now a houseman has been in, has been advised in our country since 2006. And of course, since 2006, this country's e- economy has just been in the drain. It has been in the dumps. It has been in the vegetable patch. We've thrown it into the compost heap. That is where our economy has been since 2006, since this economist from hell started whispering in uh, our our politicians' ears. Now, I'm not trying to say that he is single-handedly the the guy who is responsible for all the problems in our country, but I'll tell you, this is a very, very, very likely source of some of the major ills that are wracking our country at the moment. Uh, He is... uh, He is the neoliberal brain behind Juan Guaido's economic agenda. While online audiences may know YouTube comedian Joanna Hausman from her videos making the case for regime change in Venezuela, her economist's father has flown below the radar. His record holds the key to understanding what the U.S. wants in Venezuela. If you followed Venezuela-related news on social media, you've undoubtedly stumbled across a video released by Joanna Hausman in which she promises to tell you what's happening in Venezuela, just the facts. Despite a title designed to instill confidence in the uninformed viewer, upon closer examination, the facts presented in Hausman's video hardly stand the test of reality. Hausman, for example, attempted to pass off dubious associations that Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido is not right-wing. <laughs> and that he did not declare himself president of the country. Yeah, President Trump declared him president of the country, and he said, yeah, I agree. She also claimed that President Nicolas Maduro made up the National Constituent Assembly, you know, the parliament of the country, neglecting to mention that the governing body was clearly defined in the country's 1999 constitution and was ratified by 71.8% of the country through a democratic vote. Hausman's performance ended with a teary-eyed appeal for sympathy. On a personal level, my father is exiled from going back home. No, in actual fact, it's not. For a video dedicated to just the facts, Hausman's rant admitted to an especially pertinent piece of information. Her exiled father and the rest of her family are no ordinary Venezuelans and are, in fact, key players in the bid to bring down the elected government. It's amazing, you know, you can elect a government and America will come bomb you. Uh, You cannot elect your government and America will come and bomb you. And they will tell you that they're building democracy. Much of Hausman's script echoed talking points outlined by her father, Ricardo Hausman, in a 2018 article ominously entitled D-Day for Venezuela. The piece amounted to a plea for the U.S. to depose Maduro by force, with Hausman arguing that military intervention by a coalition of regional forces may be the only way to end a man-made famine, threatening millions of lives. So, you know, the, the out-and-out, this guy is a liar. And he is advising our government. This is the guy that our government turns to for advice. But Ricardo Hausman is much more than a prominent pundit. He is one of the West's leading neoliberal economists who played an unsavory role in the 1980s and 1990s in devising policies that enabled the looting of Venezuela's economy by international capital and provoked devastating social turmoil. Hausman emerged among a group of neoliberal economists gathered around the Instituto del Estudio Superiores de la Administración, a private university in Caracas. They came to be known in, in Venezuela as the IESA boys, IESA boys, a not-so-affectionate reference to the Chicago boys who were imported into Chile from the University of Chicago in 1973 to devise shock therapy policies for Augusto Pinochet and his military junta. That was the first 9-11, by the way. Did you know that the CIA actually uh, organized that uh, military jets came and bombed the presidency while um, Augusto Pinochet was inside the building. Uh, 
Um, that was a coup. Uh, Augusto Pinochet was democratically elected. Uh, the CIA on, on September 11. 1973. That was the first September 11. And uh, that was all prepared for by these Chicago boys, uh, these specialists who came into Chile and organized that and they then uh, put in uh, a military junta in his place. A popular rejection of the ISA boys' agenda began with Carazao in the 19... 19- 89, a massive revolt that consumed the capital of Caracas when poor and working-class Venezuelans rioted in protest of an IMF package that mandated harsh austerity. Thousands of dead civilians and three years later, Houseman entered government to impose more shock therapy on the most vulnerable Venezuelans, making the rise of Hugo Chavez as president in 1998 practically inevitable. While unknown to most Venezuelans, Houseman remains a key player in his country's tumultuous politics. During a talk at the World Affairs Council on Greater Houston in November 2018, he eerily predicted Guaido's self-proclaimed presidency, telling the crowd, the international community is now focused on the idea that January the 10th is the end of the presidential period of Nicolas Maduro. On January the 11th, Nicolas Maduro will not be recognized as the legitimate president of Venezuela, Hausman anticipated. I think that's an important date. On January 11th, when Juan Guaido declared his preparedness to become president of Venezuela, the Harvard professor's prophecy was fulfilled. And remember, he made that, he said that in November last year. Uh, so that's like sort of three, four months before it actually happened. So you know that they've been planning this thing. You know that this guy is close in with the presidency, with what they call the deep state or whatever you want to call it in the United States. The mess that is Western democracy. Uh, deep state and all those conspiracy theorists like uh, what the Bo- the Bombadil Club, or what, what they call themselves, uh, the, the Freemasons and all of those crazies. Uh, that make up uh, American politics. A great deal of American presidents were open Freemasons, by the way. You go and you look at Washington, it's it's laid out according to Freemason principles. It's really, really, very weird. Very weird kind of stuff. You go to the East Rand, you see all this Freemason symbolism all over the place, round table and lion, you know, all of those guys. Oh, all of them. Oh, oh. And I've never met a nice Freemason, I've never met a nice Lions Club person, and I've never met a nice uh, Rotary Roundtable person. They're all, what we, when we were young, we used to call them schloops. Almost two months later, uh, after his January 11th uh, self-coronation, uh, uh, Guaido appointed Houseman to serve as his rep- representative at the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, which is where all of... Um, Venezuela's money had now been sent over. Now he's got in Houseman to give him advice on what to do with the money that belongs to the Venezuelan people. Yeah, and the, the, this is American democracy. This was perhaps the best signal of what lies in store for Venezuela if Guaido and his benefactors in the Trump administration achieve their goal of regime change. Houseman's res- return to power spells the restoration of the ISA boys' agenda bringing neoliberal austerity back with a vengeance. A detailed look at his history is a preview of what lurks on the horizon for the poor and working-class Venezuelans, whose lives improved the most throughout the era of Chavismo. The wreckage of the IS boys. The neoliberal Venezuelan economist Juan Cristobal Nagal described the neoliberal economics plan he favored for his country during the late 1980s as your basic Washington consensus recipe. Nagel said the plan consisted of the following ingredients, an end to price controls and basic foods and subsidies for gasoline, the privatization of state utilities, a decision to float the country's exchange rate, and the lowering of tariffs. Well, it sounds like Peter Bruce, uh, the, the former editor, now I don't know what he is, he's the publisher or he's, he's like the, the, the editor of the world or something. Um, it sounds like Peter Bruce uh, wrote this for him. Um, you know, this is, sounds like uh, it, it was written by Business Day. This is the nonsense the Business Day tr- trots out on a daily basis. The reforms, uh, uh, while campaigning for 1988's presidential elections, Carlos Andres Perez uh, of the anti-democratic Asuncion Democracia Party, of the Social Democrat, not the anti-democratic, sorry, the Social Democratic Asuncion Democracia, Democracia Party slammed the International Monetary Fund as a neutron bomb that killed people but left buildings standing. 
Immediately upon taking office, however, Perez filled the IMF's toxic economic prescription for Venezuela's alien economy, accepting the massive loan that completed the, the Grand Virage. In other words, uh, he betrayed his people. Uh, Perez, uh, he campaigned on one ticket and then implemented policies exactly the opposite end. The reforms led to a 30% hike in bus fares, uh, prompting masses of workers to flood the streets in cities nationwide to publicly reject the bitter pool Perez was forcing down their throats. Perez opted to violently oppress the uprising, known as the Caracazal, uh, declaring a national emergency and deploying the military to extinguish the revolt. By the time it was over, anywhere between 300 and 3,000 people were dead, with piles of bodies discovering mass graves outside Caracas. Uh, Ricardo Hausmann, the man we're talking about, ended Venezuela's government under Perez, serving as his planning and finance minister from 1992 to 93. Peter Bruce would have voted for him while sitting on the board of the country's central bank. Hausmann has claimed that he was at Oxford University when uh, the Caracazao erupted, although he had already made his mark on the government's economic policies. Hausmann will tell you that he was abroad at Oxford during the Caracazao rebellion, says George Chicharia Lomaja, author of We Created Chavez, A People's History of the Venezuelan Revolution. While this may be true, explained Chicharia Lomaja, um, Hausman had already spent years in a number of government positions going back to the mid-1980s and as a key ISCA boy, spreading neoliberal doctrine from his professorship at the Institute. Indeed, before Perez tapped Hausman to serve as the planning minister, the economist was also working as professor at the IESA. It's a classic bait-and-switch, said uh, Kitsiarela Maia. Ma Perez had just been elected using anti-neoliberal anti rhetoric, but immediately appointed an IESA-dominated cabinet and did the opposite. In his book, Windfall, Windfall to Curse, Oil and Industrialization in Venezuela, economist Jonathan uh, D. John wrote that Perez was greatly influenced by IESA academics, characterizing them as an elite group who had no party affiliation and were champions of radical neoliberal reforms. According to D. John, this group initiated rapid liberalization reforms, specifically in trade policy, including reducing the maximum tariff from 135%, one of the highest in the region, to 20% by 1992. A year later, that rate would fall to 10%. In other words, Perez, Hausman, and the ISEA boys had opened up Venezuela for a free run by multinational corporations while gutting whatever was left of the welfare state. In 1994, Hausman received his golden parachute with the post as chief economist at the Inter-American Development Bank in Washington. This institution, which claims to improve lives in Latin America and the Caribbean by providing financial and technical support to reduce poverty and inequality, is just another mechanism for imposing the Washington Consensus. The U.S. controls 30% of the bank's voting power over financial decisions, even though it is not situated in Latin America, where the bank is supposed to do its work. Meanwhile, all 26 Caribbean and Latin American member states carry only 50% sway over the bank's decisions. While Hausman perpetuated his brand of neoliberalism from Washington, a movement was building in the barracks and barrios of Venezuela to exert popular control over the economy. It was led by a charismatic military man named Hugo Chavez. Okay, we'll, we'll gloss over Chavez's rise to power. Um, uh, although we must say that when he rose to power and the things that he was fighting against, uh, newspapers like the Washington Post and the New York Times, they were, they were quite happily saying, yes, he's doing a good job. Yeah, the people are being badly done, done by in Venezuela and he's doing the right thing. And that was before, of course, um, in 2001 happened, the George Bush stupidity overtook America, the centralization of control in the mass media, and uh, you got the kind of entertainment journalists that took over South African journalism in the 1990s now coming to the fore without a single original thought in their head, without an understanding of how to do journalism or even what journalism is, or even perhaps even how to spend it. I doubt they've heard of the J equals 3D cubed uh, formula, but they probably live by it. Um, and those people came on, and then, and then, of course, you know, it's very easy to now to start demonizing people with simple puppets instead of real journalists. 
Six years later, Chavez won democratic election for president, convening a national assembly and referendum to rewrite the country's constitution and alter the character of the Venezuelan state in a dramatic fashion. By this time, Hausman and his wife, Ana Julia Khattar, who also served in the Perez administration, had left for high-flying careers in Washington, where Hausman took over as chief economist at the Inter-American Development Bank. While her husband worked at the bank, Khattar was a senior fellow at Inter-American Dialogue, a think tank primarily funded by Chevron, the Ford Foundation, USAID, and her husband's employer. In 2000, Hausman took a professional job at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government, waiting and watching for an opportunity to return to power in his home country. Mm, well, he still hasn't got it right. Back in Venezuela, the Bolivarian Revolution ushered in by Chavez provided an antidote to the IESA method that had produced so much social damage to Venezuela's majority. The Bolivarian Revolution was an indirect response to neoliberalism, born of mass resistance in the streets, uh, claims uh, Kichiarello Maher, observing that while in power it remained largely faithful to that mission. Kichiarello Maher added that it would be difficult to exaggerate the impact Chavismo had had on Venezuelan society, because for the first time in its history, oil was put at the service of the people. Most important, however, the poor, so long excluded, became protagonists in the political life of Venezuela and active participants in local direct democracy. Chavez moved to nationalize not only the country's prosperous oil resources, booting ExxonMobil and Conoco uh, Phillips from the field, but also centers of agricultural production, telecommunications and mineral mining, considering Venezuela sits atop the largest oil reserves in the world, as well as sizable gold stocks. This achievement was no small feat. In his 1998 inaugural address, Chavez cited uh, Pope John Paul II as having described capitalism as savage, Using the words of the Pope to highlight the social damage left behind by Hausman and his colleague Chavez declared, It is savage that in a country like ours more than half of preschoolers are not going to preschool. It is savage to know that only one out of every five children who enter preschool, only one in five finishes elementary school. That is savage because that is the future of this country. In 2002, just one month after facing down a U.S.-backed coup attempt, Chavez addressed the conference in Madrid, in Madrid declaring neoliberalism is the path to how, unlike Perez, Venezuela's new leader could not sell out his promise to reject the IMF's austerity agenda. During the Chavez era, the Hausmann family was not content to sit on the sidelines and, sidelines and watch him build a 21st century socialism. Joanna's mother, Ana Julia Khattara, assumed a position as executive director of Sumate, a U.S.-backed civil society group formed by right-wing Dali Maria Corina Machado in order to build democracy in Venezuela. In 2003, Sumate received a $53,000 uh, donation from the National Endowment for Democracy to work on referendum and general electoral activities, according to U.S. diplomatic cable that was released by WikiLeaks. The initiative uh, represented Qatar and Machado's attempt to remove Chavez from power through popular recall, yet the public rejected the referendum by a whopping 59% margin in results certified by the Carter Center and Organization for American States. Seeking to defend his wife's failed project, Ricardo Hausman co-authored a paper in which he insisted it opened the door to hypotheses of fraud marring the vote. His argument was thoroughly rebuked in an extensive study issued by the Center for Economic and Policy Research, which determined Hausman and its co-author, MIT's uh, Roberto Rigobon, provided no evidence of fraud. Sumate's uh, subsequent efforts to label the vote as fraudulent were also rebuffed in a comprehensive report released by the Carter Center, which also concluded it found no evidence. Despite these failures, President George W. Bush welcomed Machado to the White House in 2005. In the Oval Office, Bush heralded her efforts to defend the electoral and constitutional rights of all Venezuelans and citizens. This is why Chavez was calling the American president an idiot. But of course, you know, everyone knew that already. I don't know if he could even tie his own shoelaces. Sociologist William Robinson told Venezuela analysis that Sumatra was part of a full-blown operation, a massive foreign policy operation to undermine the Venezuelan revolution, to overthrow the government of Hugo Chavez and to reinstall the elite back in power in Venezuela. Such elites include multiple members of uh, Joanna Hausman's clan. My extended family, they go out on these protests, the YouTube, YouTube comedian declared in a video. My uncle is in jail simply for being a journalist. <laughs>
Her uncle is Anna Julia's brother, Braulia Khatar, and he was not simply a journalist. He was a lawyer and businessman jailed, not for journalism, but for extortion, fraud, and other financial crimes. And Julia and Braulia were the children of Braulia Khatar Dotti, who served as Secretary for Parliamentary and Municipal Affairs in the ruling Democratic Action Party while it was engaged in a violent battle against the armed revolutionary left movement. The independent Chilean news site El Desconcierto described Braulio Sr. as having been in charge of eliminating the leftist groups in Venezuela at the time. In 1963, he literally wrote the book on how to disable the extreme left and guerrillas. It was called Disabling the Extreme Left and the Korean Guerrillas. Houseman's power play for opening up the oil industry. Fast forward to 2019. And Johanna Hausman sits comfortably in a New York City apartment, complaining that the Venezuelan economy is a disaster in a country that sits on the world's largest oil reserves. Of course, the economy is a disaster, but only because of American sanctions. Meanwhile, Johanna's father, Ricardo, has been barnstorming the U.S. to drum up support at elite think tanks for a coup he clearly saw on the horizon. During his November 2018 address at the World Affairs Council of Greater Houston, which functions as a round table for U.S. oil executives, Hausman laid out his agenda for the morning after regime change. The economists called for an end to the Bolivarian government's policy of investing oil wealth into Venezuelan society, stating his support for private investment in the oil industry without the government participation. In fact, Hausman imagined the opening up of the oil industry as a top item on the new government's agenda. The selection of Ricardo Hausman to serve at the Inter-American Development Bank by Guaido's U.S. handlers demonstrates how central neoliberal economics are, are to his own administration. This is about people, China Hausman insisted at the end of a YouTube performance. This is about people wanting to take their country back. These people include a family and are not your average Venezuelans. Ah, well, there's it. We've come to the end of our show. Jazakumla for joining us. I make dua that whatever trading activity you got up to today has been profitable and above all, halal. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.